I feel like I've lost your question somewhere in there. No, that's fine. I, I think that also brings up uh, the next point, which is that on Facebook, people are just thinking that it's mainly casual casual players who are doing it. And then you're yes. mentioning that you're doing Dungeons and Dragons on there. In fact, when Facebook was exploding in terms of social games on Facebook, people were like, well, fine, that's a casual gaming audience. It isn't the hardcore players. Hardcore players are still playing on their console. They might be playing PC games still, but they're not migrating to Facebook. What right. are your what are your thoughts on that? Is that just um, you know is is that true, or do you feel that now these hardcore players are going there, uh, and so this, this this is a question of that negativity thing? Do you just say I, that you know what hardcore players aren't going to spend their time on Facebook? Facebook is just for these casual players, or do you listen to or do you try to lead the charge on where these are you know on developing a hardcore market on the Facebook platform? Right. The the, the metaphor I use here or the analogy I use here is, is I say, so, so if you imagine a, a world where Germany only built motorcycles, you know, then you would see a, a world where everybody would say, well, you know, I'm not interested in, in, in German transportation because it's all just motorcycles. And the problem is with that is that you've combined two different things. You've combined a, a product with its platform. And so, yes, you're absolutely right. In the beginning, you know, Facebook was a lot of casual games and that was an emergence more of the fact that the Pete, that there was a very, very wide audience there. You weren't going to be successful with a very niche product. So the things that were successful there were the solitaires, let's say, you know, the, the minesweepers, the, yeah. the simple games that were easy to play and easy to get in and out of. But as Facebook grew, the customer base grew that customer base who came because Facebook had value in and of itself without the game consideration included gamers. And so something, you know, this is very near and dear to our hearts, but we really, really believe because I was on Facebook and I really did wasn't enjoying a ton of the Facebook games, but I was playing them because they had, they were time sliced appropriately. I could play them for 10, 15 minutes at a time and then get back to work, or I could play them for 10, 15 minutes at a time and then go to bed. And that was exactly the amount of gaming I need, gaming snacks, let's say, gaming appetizers. But once I became habituated to being on Facebook, did I, would I have wanted something more? Absolutely. And that's exactly where this whole D&D thing comes from. You know, we're targeting what I'll call a mid-core audience, which is the audience of disenfranchised gamers who has kids, who has, you know, a lot of busy scheduling and really doesn't have the time to sit down for eight hours at a time to play a triple A AAA product. And more importantly, doesn't have the time to research whether that triple A product is even worth buying. So isn't going to make a $60 purchase blindly. And so in inadvertently has not has stopped playing games, even though they love it. What we're doing here is we're giving players the opportunity. I mean, D&D is trying to be the most authentic D&D experience you can find online. And what I mean by that is we're not trying to gamify it in the traditional sense where we turn it into an action game. We're not trying to make it a run around hack and slash. We are trying to be true to the turn-based nature of the game, to the to the uh, leveling nature of the game. You know, we're not giving you 10 levels within the first five minutes like most um, most casual games do. We we keep true to the to the leveling of D&D. We keep true to the the items of D&D um, and we believe and we're sh and we're seeing it in the numbers that there is a fan base out there 
that not just a D&B fan base, because we kind of exceeded that already. We're at the point where we're clearly drawing in people who are hungry for something more than appetizers, who are ready to at least go to the first course of a game. You know, and, and I also believe, and this is a second trend, I believe that one of the unique things about video games is that they teach and that a player, the more he plays video games, the more he learns and the less the same level of complexity pleases him as he goes forward. And so I believe that, you know, it's, a, it's just purely theory, but I believe that Zynga and all these other large casual game companies are, pull, you know, hoovering in new people but just as quickly spitting them out the back. And those people are all kind of wandering the internets looking for a game that's a little deeper than the last casual game experience that they encountered. And I really do believe that the next boom in gaming is going to be seen at the mid-core level. It's going to be seen at, 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 uh, at a level where I like to play games I, I've, I've outgrown the casual games and or I don't have time for the deep investment games and I'm looking for a place where I can play a game that either is deeper than a casual game or is uh, lighter time sliced than a hardcore game. Wow, that was a super long answer. Yeah. To that question. Well, can you talk about the game design and game mechanics that you have to then apply to make a mid-core type game? You know, is it, what are, are there any different game mechanics or uh, that are going to be specific just to mid-core games versus these casual social games? Yeah, I mean, I think the most interesting thing that we're finding is that the mid-core products are almost in some ways track like an MMO and in some ways track like a casual game. And so what we're finding across the board is the traditional uh, in-your-face roadblocking that a lot of casual games do, like, oh, yeah, it would be nice if you could keep playing, but you can't unless you buy energy. Um, isn't, working, you know, isn't working so well in a mid-core game. It works, don't get me wrong. Yeah. And this is the thing about being a fighter magic user. You know, this is the thing about being a hybrid class somewhere in between the hardcore and the, and the casual, is that everything, the, the beauty is everything works, but to varying degrees. And so some of the mechanics that we employ that are different are we try to give the player something with every purchase. So we try to um, give the player a value add to his game experience. In other words, rather than just saying, hey, buy this thing that goes away, you know, buy, buy an artificial thing or, or create artificial barriers like, oh yeah, you need to have 10 friends to buy this thing or you need to have 10 friends to do this thing. Instead, what we do is we say, okay, well, we're going to sell you potions. You know, those things will heal you. They have a tangible, um, they bring tangible value to your gaming experience. Yes, they cost money, but they bring a tangible value to your gaming experience. And so it, it feels more like a hobby store. It feels more like a, a trade instead of saying, oh, your, your, your parking meter has timed out. So if you want to stay parked here, you got to put in another quarter. Okay. I mean, does that make sense? Yeah. I can get into more detail on that, but there's a lot of mechanics that get that approach. Yeah. Um, you know, also, how, how do you like this new business model then on um, Facebook versus uh, the previous business models you've uh, encountered with PC and, and console? Um, to say that I love it <laughs> would be to really understate it. Yeah. Um, 
but but here's what I love about it. It's it's not. It, I, I feel like social, I feel like these kind of words are just explorations, and we're all going to come back to just making entertainment. But what I love about it is the conversation I get to have with my with my player now is, you know, if you look at the at the products like, you know, uh, retail products, they're more like ships. The, the The company works on it for a very, very long amount of time. Yeah. And when it's done, it launches into the ocean. And from that moment on, it begins to rust and decay. And maybe, maybe, just maybe, six months from now, you get some kind of, you know, modification, some kind of upgrade to it. It gets a new coat of paint, but rarely. And with this kind of model, it's more like a whale. It also gets launched into the ocean, but its life begins there as opposed to ending there. You know, it, it, is, a, it is a product that grows within within the environment of being played as opposed to a product that slowly dies within that same environment so i love it because it, it's great to have the metrics if you're not a slave to them it's great to see what your players are doing um it's great to to get the feedback and be able to actually implement in days you know because that's the other problem it's like even if you know that your players in, in a say a console title even if you know that your players don't like a, a character class it's going to be months, if not a year, before you can address that because you can't even get the slot. You know, you, there's no hot fixing a console game. There's no, there's, you have to get a SKU slot. You have to get permission. It has to go through approvals. I mean, on a Facebook game, I see something the players don't like on Tuesday. I can have it up as soon as Wednesday. I can have a fix. And, you know? and is that something your studio does, is just this quick response? Um, I mean, is the mid-core audience, are they also excited by weekly releases or releases every three days? What's, what's the cycle for that? Yeah, I mean, you're, you're, you're broaching into a larger conversation, which I'll, I'll scrape against, like the Titanic against an iceberg, and, and say the following. I'll say that the biggest deception that is played on independent developers is that game making is game making is game making. When I use the analogy of ships and whales, I really mean it. It's that different. You know, it to have a, 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 a game that once it's live is like a living baby. If you've had a baby, you know what I mean? That first time of no sleep and and working all the time to keep that baby alive, that's this. And it's totally different from making a game. It's totally different from making a, a retail product. It, it, you're looking at things in like flows and streams instead of unique feature sets and, and discrete events. You're, you're now, everything is a flux. Everything is, is, you know, like, oh, look, I'm making 5,000 a day. I touched this tiny thing and I just went to making 2,000 a day. I touched this tiny thing and I made, went to making 10,000 a day. So there is this incredible, I'm riding on the bucking bronco feeling that just isn't there in the fire and forget world of retail gaming. And so I think that, um, you know, that it's, a, it's an incredible place to be, I mean, I love it because it's just it's it's a it's a fundamental change in the way we work, and it's a yeah. more it's become you know it's funny because you say social game and and a lot of people will argue it's not really social, where it's really become the most social 
is between the player and the game maker. Yeah. I mean, we have become more social with our player. So it's it's a really awesome world to live in. And so then do you feel that console gaming is going to die? Like, is that going to go, <laughs> go, go the way the Dota words? I mean, I mean, you're everyone... <laughs> Because, um, you know, the issue with the consoles, and obviously there's still people making a lot of money there, but the issue is, is that the business model is predicated on these console developers getting a cut. You know, they're very vested in making sure that they get the most out of these game developers. Absolutely. And, and, <laughs> and I, I, yes is the short answer. Um, the long answer is yes as we know it, because they could change and evolve but what i what i what i see as the fundamental problem with console is that it is fighting for a space with non-game entertainment venues it is fighting for the living room and what i what i see more likely than it going away is it it going the way of the dvr and I see. I see that you that what'll happen. I believe what'll happen is that your cable provider will give you a box that will have a DVR and a console inside of it, okay. and that's what you're going to get. You're or something get like phone. Google TV or Apple TV, where it has all that stuff. Sure, sure. And and I think you know what what they're all arguing about right now. What they're all fighting for. They're all fighting for the living room. And and I think everybody who's fighting for the living room has kind of missed the point. But I'll get to that after I talk about fighting for the living room. Um, but they're all fighting for the living room, whether they're doing it as a standalone box, as a as a bundled box, or as a box that's duct taped to the back of a TV. Um, they're all fighting for the living room, and they're all, more importantly, fighting for the language with which you will speak to your entertainment. But that's a, a much longer conversation. And I think eventually, you know, if, if you ask me what. I would hope to see in my lifetime, I would tell you what I hope to see is a, is a three channel process. And what, and what I mean by that is I hope to see all data in the cloud. I hope to see all control of that data in your handheld. And I hope to see all display of that data on a dumb flat screen that sits in your, anywhere in your house. Like in my vision of the future, all screens are really stupid. They have nothing going on for them. And all they do is they're constantly trolling the room for a device. They're constantly trolling in the room. Let's call it the iPhone for a moment. Yeah. They're constantly trolling the room for your iPhone. And as soon as they detect that there's a, there's a, there's a media controller, the iPhone, in your, in your pocket, your iPhone goes, your iPhone goes, oh, okay, I know you're there. Thank you very much for letting me know you're there. And... When you pull out your iPhone or your media control device, that media control device or that media bridge says, here's what you've got available up in the cloud, and here's what you've got available in display options down here on Earth. And I'm going to control all of that for you. And maybe I even have some of it here remotely in case you get delinked from the cloud. So, oh, okay, you want to watch, you know, you want to watch CBS? Well, I'm no longer worried about a cable box or a this or a that box. It's going to stream from the cloud. It's just going to do it on the say-so of this media controller device, my iPhone, which is subscribing to CBS directly, 
like I bought CBS through iTunes or I bought CBS through some other method and I have a CBS subscription and I'm subscribing to that channel because if you think about it, cable's next. You know, it, we, time and time again, we've shown, time and time again, we have shown that buying product sight unseen is not a viable retail uh, solution. And cable is one of the only places left where you're still forced to buy product sight unseen. You pay your cable bill whether you watch it or not, whether you, you like the channels or not. You know, it's, not use, it's the only utility you pay that isn't usage-based. So, so we're, we're going to get into an issue here soon where that's going to, I mean, that's the next step, right? After all of this, once, once all of the old folks die off, yeah. people are going to go, why do I have to pay for cable again? Why can't I just buy a channel? Why can't I just take TV and Napsterize it and do what, what we did for games and for Napster, you know, or for music? Um, and I think, so anyway, sorry, I, I know I talk a lot, so let me keep going. No, that's good. <laughs> so I think everybody who's fighting for the, for the living room is missing the point. I think the true point, the true success story, and this is why we're already heading there software-wise, is untethered entertainment. You know, in my opinion, Facebook is an untethered experience. I can go, you know, I can be taking a vacation in Hawaii, go to the business center in my hotel. I can get on my Facebook and I can play all my games. So for me, that's an untethered experience. I don't have to have a piece of technology that I'm lugging around. I don't have to be, you know, worrying about my own personal connection, et cetera. And then anything on a mobile platform is also an untethered experience. And I think what you're going to see long term is that the software leaders in our business 10, 20 years from now are going to be those people who have gone mobile. Not because it's the fad of today, not because it's the, the, um, the hotness of today, but because it is truly the future. If you, if you map the world and you put a little bright light, if you put a little yellow light wherever there's an Xbox and you put a little blue light wherever there's a PS3 and you put a little green light wherever there's a PC and you put a little uh, purple light or red light wherever there's a smartphone, you would not see the yellow and blue lights because the green and the red ones would crowd them out. Yeah. And in many countries, you wouldn't see any yellow and blue lights because you, the PC and the smartphone have, have trumped everything. And so if we're going to be an entertainment company, if we're going to be the entertainment of the future, shouldn't we be looking globally? Shouldn't we be looking at what India's number one platform is, what China's number one platform is? Because I can guarantee you it's not the Xbox, and I can guarantee you it's not the PlayStation.